When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is John Demeter, and my wife and I have been coming to Redemption Peoria for a long time since it started. Um, I'm an elder here at this church, and my wife and I have been on staff with a ministry called Athletes in Action for the last 15 years. Athletes in Action is a branch of Campus Crusade for Christ, or crew, and we work with college and professional athletes all over the world. And my job within Athletes in Action is to run and direct the ultimate training camps. So these are six-day experiences where we bring in college and professional athletes. Now we have a high school version. And we train them how to integrate the gospel in the midst of their competition. That they can worship God as they compete in their sport. And we had five locations domestically in the U.S. this last year and five internationally, so ten total. And I oversee those. So I don't go to every single location, but I travel quite a bit. And so I was gone about 100 days last year out of state. So when I get to come home, I love to come home. And my wife has done such an amazing job of making our home a place of refreshment, not just for me, but for other people. And so when I get to sleep in my own bed, I don't know if you have that feeling. It just feels really good. Um, And my wife and I would feel that way about Redemption Peoria too. And we get to be here on Sundays. It's refreshing to our soul and we get to go to our redemption communicate and connect with our people we love being here at redemption i grew up kind of moving around the u.s just different job opportunities for my family and so i was living in richmond virginia in 1990 my dad got a call for another job opportunity and so we ended up moving out here to phoenix arizona moved to arrowhead ranch it was pretty much the farthest thing north and the farthest thing west besides sun city at the time and I was going into seventh grade in the summer of 1990. And so I'm in a new state, a new city, a new school, trying to get my bearings, trying to figure out the culture out here. And a lot of cultural training happens at the bus stop. 
I don't know if it still does. Back in the 90s, it did, before there were phones. And so I would go to the bus stop. This is my bus stop here, 69th Avenue in Utopia in Arrowhead Ranch. And right there on the side, that middle grassy patch, that's where we waited for the bus, where that crosswalk was. And I remember going up to the bus stop. And one morning, there was like a a huddle of kids kind of all around each other because Michelle had brought her Walkman to the bus stop. Now, for those of you that are younger, a Walkman is a music-playing device. It's very archaic. It's about the shape of a brick. It weighs about the, you know, like a brick, and wires come out, and you actually have to plug in your wires. Like like these headphones, um, got these at Savers yesterday for a dollar. So I was excited about that. Um, but you plug it in and you put a cassette tape in there and you hit play and that's how you listen to music. So I walk up, I engage with the huddle because I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And somebody hands me the cassette tape, the work, like the, the outside of the cassette tape. And I'm looking at it and going, I don't, I don't know this artist. This seems kind of new and interesting. And, and so I finally wait my turn. I'm patient. And finally the headphones come my way because they're getting all passed around. They're only listening to one song. So I get my opportunity, I put my headphones on, and this is what I hear. Yo, VIP, let's kick it. Okay, so I hear that song for the first time. It's like the first week it's out, and I'm like, that song is fire! I'm like, whoa! I had never heard anything like that before coming through my ears. And the song Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice single-handedly catapulted the suburban youth of Hillcrest Middle School to the dance floor. And there was like crazy dance gyrations and we were wearing crazy clothes and changing our haircuts. We had dudes like shaving lines in the side of their eyebrows all because of this song. It was new and strange and fresh and like, what does it even mean to whack somebody like a candle? Like, I don't even know what that lyric means. It doesn't make any sense, but there was something fresh about it that, man, made me come alive. And like a week later, if you know any music history, you know that there was a controversy over this song, right? Because although I thought it was new, it was actually really old, right? Because in 1981, the rock band Queen teams up with David Bowie, the front man, and they make the song Under Pressure. And it sounds like this. Redemption decided they were going to go through the book of Acts in 2017. We're going to be in the book of Acts until October. Sometimes what they'll do is when they're about to start a new book, they'll bring in an expert. And so they brought in an expert on Acts, Dr. Daryl Bach, 
from Dallas Seminary. He's the professor of New Testament studies, and they brought him in. So some of the leaders here went over to Redemption Gilbert with some of the other Redemption congregations, and we got there at 9 o'clock in the morning, and we left at 4 in the afternoon, and Dr. Bach walked us through every chapter of Acts. It's massively helpful from an expert. And he started this way. He wrote this phrase on the board. He said, when thinking about the book of Acts and how the New Testament readers would read it and what was actually happening, he said, the book of Acts is actually a strange new thing. That's actually old. It's a strange new thing that's old. And Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, Acts is really a sequel to the gospel of Luke that he writes And like any good sequel, at the beginning of this book of Acts, he's reviewing what happens in the book of Luke. So if you look at the end of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, there's some similar scenes that happen. And the last two weeks we've been in those first scenes in chapter 1. Let's just review real quick. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Jesus shows up and he teaches his followers. And he gives them, in verses 6 through 8, a new mission. That you're going to be my witnesses throughout the world. And I'm going to actually empower you to be able to do this mission. And then in verses 9 through 11, he ascends back to the Father after being with him for 40 days. Last week, Aaron walked us through what happens in verses 12 through 26 while they're waiting when they're waiting for God to show up again, he says they gathered together, they prayed, they meditated on God's word, and then they made adjustments. It's hard to wait on God sometimes, and he unpacked that beautifully in those verses. And today in chapter 2, we get to see what the disciples were actually waiting for. So if you don't already have a Bible, please open it uh, up if it's not already open to chapter 2 of Acts And we're going to jump in. And what I want to do this morning is really make three observations from those 13 verses of what it really looks like when the Spirit of God encounters His church. And when the Spirit of God encounters us individually. Some of those indicators are there's going to be an outside power that's going to happen. It's external. It's not in us. It's outside of us. The second is we're going to have inner illumination because of that power coming into us. And then the third is that we're going to have a universal message because of those things. And then I want to offer us some application of what does that actually look like in our life. So the first verse of chapter 2 actually sets up the context really, really well historically. Let's look at it together. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So let's stop. Pentecost actually means 50 in the original language. And so this is 50 days after the Passover. If you're not familiar with the Passover, that celebration that Jews had, both religiously and culturally, they would celebrate and be reminded of what happened to them when God pulled them out of slavery in Egypt. It's in Exodus where God's people are crying to him. He finally listens and says, listen, I'm going to deliver you from your enemies. And he sends Moses to be his deliverer. And there's this back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh. These plagues come and and Pharaoh says, okay, leave. But he says, no, I don't want you to leave. And So there's this tug of war, back and forth, back and forth. And then finally God says, okay, listen. 
this last plague, it's going to be really bad. I want you to warn Pharaoh, but I also want you to go and you tell people. You tell the people of God that I want them to sacrifice a lamb. Sacrifice a lamb, and what I want you to do with that sacrifice, and I want you to take the lamb, and I want to take, you, take the blood, and I want you to put it over your door frame. Because what's going to happen? I'm going to send the angel of death, and he's going to take the life of every firstborn person in the city. But if you obey me, and you make this sacrifice, and you put the blood over your door frame, the angel of death will pass over your house, and your son will be rescued. And so that's what the word Passover means. And so the Jewish people would celebrate the Passover of God rescuing their kids. So that's what happens. Pharaoh's son dies because of that plague. And he finally is like, get out, just go. So Moses leads the nation out. 50 days after that Passover event, They're in the wilderness, and he's interacting with God. Moses is interacting with God at Mount Sinai. And he goes up to Mount Sinai, and he gets the Ten Commandments, the law for how to live, how God's people are to live. And he comes down, and that is what Pentecost was. It was 50 days after the Passover, and it celebrated Moses bringing down the law down the mountain. And so they would celebrate that every year. They would celebrate Passover. They would celebrate Pentecost every year as a nation and as a religion. And it was known they would do this uh, festival. It was called the Feast of the Harvest. You can read about it in Exodus 23. And this was one of three days when all the male Jews in Jerusalem would actually make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. I mean, they were, they were from all, they were scattered all over, and they would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And when we look at the text in verse 1, it says they were all together in one place. It's probably the 120 that are gathered at this point that we see in chapter 1, verse 15. That God's little mini church that's gathering these people that have encountered Jesus, he's been teaching them. There's about 120 of them up in this room. And then this happens in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The first evidence that we see the Spirit coming into play is that there's outside power that comes into this story as the the sound of like a rushing wind comes in and fills the entire house i don't know if you've been around elements like a tornado or a hurricane and you felt the brute force of wind the first time i learned how to snowboard was in college the beginning of college and the first day is terrible right You're just on your backside the whole, you fall down the mountain the whole way. Um, But then the end of the first day, I started to get the hang of it, you know, how to go down and not fall. So the second day, which was right after the first day, we went up and I was really starting to get the hang of it. And we were up at Lake Tahoe with my family and um, my brothers had been snowboarding before and skiing. And so uh, we were at Squaw Valley Mountain, which the Olympics, the Winter Olympics were held there one time. So it's not this little hill, it's, it's a mountain. And it's one of these things where you've got to stand on like these lifts, like everybody's standing and it takes you up, and then you've got to get off, and then you've got to go another one, and then another one. So we decide, we're young, we're like, let's, go, let's ride it all the way to the top. Let's go. We're going up. So it's the very end of the day. We go all the way to the top of the mountain. And once you get to the top of the mountain, there's kind of this like little railway, um, this little kind of area that you would go, and then it would dump you down into the run. And on this little 
space, like on the other side is really like a drop-off. There's really nothing. It's not very wise to do if you're new like I was. So I get off the lift and I'm going and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this gust of wind comes up and literally picks me up off of my snowboard and slams me on the ground. And it was the scariest thing I've ever experienced. Like something that is in nature could just automa- just take me like a ragdoll and throw me down on the ground. And so this wind, the sound of this wind in this text in verse 2, it's not it's a mighty rushing wind. It's, it's not this gentle breeze. And when we see wind or breath in the scriptures, we see in John chapter 3, Jesus is interacting with this man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is saying, like, how do I be sa- How am I saved? How do I follow you? And Jesus talks about the spirit is like wind. It goes wherever it wants. You can't control it. You can't contain it. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet has this vision of this valley of dry bones. And they're dead, lifeless bones. And wind comes in and actually gives it life. And the bones turn into life. In Job chapter 38, there's this dialogue between God and Job, and he's wrestling with these things, and he's kind of popping off to God, and God finally answers him. In chapter 38, verse 1, you know how he answers him? The text says that the Lord answers Job in a whirlwind. The Spirit is powerful, but it comes from an outside in. And if we really believe that God's Spirit comes from the outside in, it starts to bump up of what the culture says, right? Because the culture will tell you, like, all of your problems, all the problems in the world are on the outside, right? And we're really, really good at this, right? We blame shift like experts, right? Like, it's the woman you gave me, right? Like, it's not my fault. It's something else out here that is doing this to me. And we defend ourselves all the time. And the world would say the answer to that is actually inside of you, right? The answer, the problems are out there. The answer is actually inside of you. Kind of pull up your bootstraps like it's, it's down in there. I used to share uh, a Nike commercial with athletes when I would have a session with them. And in the beginning of this Nike commercial, the, there was a quote. And the quote read, everything you have is already inside of you. Everything you have is already inside of you. And then it had all these... Um, unbelievable videos to this song of these athletes doing these unbelievable things. And it's basically like trying to say, listen, you have what it takes. You can do it. You can do it. It's in there. That's what the culture would tell us. The problem is that the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. Although there's problems out in the world, it's clear there's problems in the world. You know where the real problem is? It's me. It's inside of me because of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve decide not to follow God, now there's a ripple effect of sin, and we're born into a sin nature. Your natural proclivity will be selfish desires. You're going to do what feels good for you. That is a problem. And God's word doesn't say that the answer is inside of you. It actually says the counter of that. It's on. It's from the outside of you. God's spirit has to show up and change you. And the church's power, its unity, its configuration, it's not manufactured by human efforts. 
but empowered and sustained by divine grace. This is something I need to continually be reminded of because I try to live the Christian life in my own power. I really do. Like, I get it. Like, I, I understand theologically and practically. Like, I know I need Jesus. Like, I, I can't save myself. I know I need Jesus for salvation. But once I bend my knee to Jesus and trust him with my life, then I move over to this category and I start just doing stuff, right? I'm disciplined. I'll read my Bible. I'll go to church. All good things. But if I'm doing them in the power of my own flesh, and I'm not relying on God's power, this outside power that now indwells in me, I'm just going to get frustrated. I'm going to get burnt out. I'm going to get tired. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. You don't have to go there, but this is one of my favorite verses in the scripture. He says, talking about this issue to the church, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Right? I've been on staff with a Christian ministry for 15 years. I can share the gospel in my sleep. Eyes closed, know the points, know all the scriptures, know the transitions that can do it great. If I'm sitting down with an athlete and I'm doing that and I'm not praying, if I'm not trusting God to, sh- to show up, I'm doing that in the power of my flesh. I need to lean and trust in God's spirit to change. Change that person, change me in the midst of it. The first evidence that we see, even in the text, is the, the disciples encounter the Spirit is that it's this outside power. And maybe you're there in the Christian life. Maybe you're feeling like, man, this Christian life is hard. This deal is, it's hard, man, to love your neighbor, to forgive people. And you might be at the point where you go, man, I just, I don't think I can do it. I don't know if I can do that thing that the Bible tells me to do. You can't. You can't if you're just operating in your flesh. But by the power of the Spirit, trust in God. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you if you're a Christian. And you're saying you can't forgive this person? You can't in your flesh, but in the power of the Spirit, you can do unbelievable things for the kingdom. And you see it in the, in the disciples and the apostles. You look at Peter at the end of Luke and Man, dude's a train wreck, right? He says he's not going to deny Jesus. He denies Jesus. He runs away. He kind of cusses out this girl. Like, it's a mess. And then something changes in chapter 2. The Spirit gets poured out onto him, and he starts operating and tapping into that power, not his own power. And we'll see next week what happens. And the rest of the chapters, they live in boldness. It changes who they are. To be filled with the Spirit, God has to be the initiator. The power has to be outside of ourselves initially. Let's continue in verse 3. Well, let me read 2 again, then we'll get into 3 and 4. And suddenly again, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse 3, and divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, Luke is doing something very interesting. I think God is doing something very interesting in the symbolism of the elements that he's talking about. We talked about wind, now he's talking about fire. And anytime you see fire show up in the Bible, it's God's presence being manifested. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham 
comes to God and God makes this covenant with Abraham. And back in those times, you would make a covenant or agreement with somebody and you would cut uh, up an animal and you would divide the pieces of that animal. And then one party would stand on this end and one party with it and you'd walk to the middle and you would make the covenant kind of like a handshake, signing a contract. And you're basically saying, listen, if I don't do what I'm saying I'm going to do, you can treat me like we treated these animals. And in Genesis chapter 15, God makes this covenant with Abraham. And instead of meeting in the middle, he puts Abraham into a deep sleep and God walks through the middle. And do you know how it's visually represented? When God walks through the middle, and just, it says it's a flaming torch. Right? Moses has this encounter with God when he calls him to be a leader in this burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 13, he leads the nation of Israel at night by a pillar of fire. In Exodus 19, Moses comes down, or Moses goes up to the mountain. And the Lord descends as fire. In 1 Kings 18, there's the prophets of Baal and Elijah are fighting, and God sends fire to consume the altar. But this is a little bit different, right? It's old, but it's actually something new. Listen to what happens. It's, it's, it's not just one thing of fire, right? They're all collected, 120 of them. And look what it says individually. Right? They rested on each one of them. And so now there's this new change because of the covenant and the spirit being poured out that you can individually have this encounter with God. Everybody gets to have their burning bush moments with God because of what his spirit does differently in this section. The example of the spirit being fire, fire illuminates, it brings Light to things. And the Spirit brings light to new things, shows you who you really are. If you're really a Christian, you are a son or a daughter adopted by a king. And in Romans 8, 15, and 16, it talks about, man, when you came out of this spirit and this slavery of fear before Jesus, but now because of the Spirit, you actually have um, freedom in your life. You can live differently in that freedom. And the Spirit gives illumination to the gospel, to the reality of that. And when you're filled with the Spirit, things you know in your head, they start to travel down to your heart. Being filled with the Spirit illuminates your true identity in Christ. And when that happens, you start to have this fearless joy about life. And when I think about fearless joy... And other people that have fearless joy, man, I think about drunk people, right? And we look at it in, in, in verse 13. People look at them, they go, man, are they, they look like they're drunk, new wine. I don't know. Because what happens when you drink alcohol? You get this liquid courage, right? And Paul picks up on this idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, listen, don't, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirits. Because that fearless joy you get with wine, alcohol is a depressant. It doesn't make you depressed, it does the opposite. But it's a depressant, it like shuts off part of your brain if you drink too much of it. It makes you numb, right? That's why people like it. Because when you are filled 
With alcohol, it makes you less aware of reality. That's why you become brave, because you're not in tune with really what's happening around you. And Paul does this so beautifully. He says, don't be drunk with wine and be unaware of reality, but actually be filled with the Spirit. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, it makes you more aware of reality. The reality and the truth of the gospel, when God's Spirit fills you, that you're more loved than you can ever imagine, that you're secure, you're never alone, that because of grace you're accepted no matter what. That song we just sang about a love that never lets me go, man, if I really believe that and the Spirit illuminates that truth to me, that'll change the way I live. That'll never, a love that'll never let me go? I don't experience that in life. Because in life, all the other loves are built on like this give-take relationship. But God's spirit, because of the gospel, says no. It It doesn't matter. So that begins to change the way you think and live when you understand your identity in Christ. So I don't have to worry about whether this deal is going to go through in my business. I can be secure in Christ and trust his sovereignty. I don't have to freak out when I don't get that second date with somebody. And I'm worried, I'm thinking, oh man, I should have said this, or I should have done that. Or... No, you have security because of your relationship with Christ. Because you understand you're a daughter and a son, you're going to be taken care of. God loves you more than you could ever know. When you mess up, man, when you say something you shouldn't have, when you look at something you shouldn't have, when you've done something that you're just like, man, God's not going to love me. He's, gonna, he's probably just looking at me and hanging his head and going, golly, see, you did it again. You know, you have those tapes in your mind for whatever. You did it again. Like, you know better than that. And the Spirit is saying, that's a lie. I love you no matter what because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's how now I look at you. It's not based on your behavior. It's based on your sonship, your daughtership in me. Man, if you really grab hold of that and you start to believe that, that changes the way you live. You live with fearless joy. And not only do you live with fearless joy, you start to have a universal message because of that joy. And that's what happens as we pick up our text in verse 5. And just let me give it just a caveat real quick. We could, this could be a whole class, right? The whole speaking in tongues in 4 and 5, and what does that actually mean? And um, the original language, the word tongues, actually means language at this point, right? There's a prayer language that's tongues, which Paul talks about in the gifts in 1 Corinthians 14 and 12. This is not this. We're going to see it in a second. This is an actual real language that people speak, that people understand. Here's what it is. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that that we each hear, each of us in his own native language? And so what happens? God's Spirit fills them, begins to help them change the way they're speaking, and they're saying languages because... God is bringing people from all different directions. Go ahead, Stephen, hit that map. Look how strategic 
God is in this Pentecost of the pouring out of the Spirit. Right, so people are coming. We read that list. Laney read that list. I'm not trying to read that list because I can't even pronounce half those names. But look at all the places where people were coming from. They were coming because at Pentecost, it was one of the three days that they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. So God strategically places all people from all around right here, right at this moment. They all speak different languages, different dialects from these different places. And God's Spirit shows up and illuminates the apostles, and they start to speak the gospel, the truth of Jesus, and so people understand it in their own native tongue. And the gospel is so beautiful. It's so beautiful what God does right here. Because the gospel of Jesus is not based on your class, your social, your race, your economic status. None of that. And God is bringing people from all over to hear the gospel in their own native language so that, check this out, so that they can go back Right? This is symbolic because, again, Pentecost was this feast of the harvest, and God uses his spirit not only to save 3,000 souls. He harvests 3,000 souls, which we'll get to in a minute as they start to preach. But now these 3,000 souls, they go back to their perspective places, and they start sharing the gospel in their own communities. And if you're familiar with your Bible, this story about languages and people coming together and unifying and going out should trigger some thoughts about another story that happens in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the story is going where technology is coming into place and men, it's all one common language at this point, and men are starting to build, people are starting to build this stuff and they're, they're freaking out at how much they can do and they're going, listen, let's build a tower. Let's build a tower to the heavens. And the reason we're going to build this tower to the heavens, they were unified in mission, is to make our name great. And God sees it and he says, man, this is, this is not what this is about, making your own name great. And then two, in the text it talks about because they're unified, they could do things together. They're just doing it in the wrong direction. So God comes down, he confuses their languages, and he sends them out. And so see what's happening. This is a reversal of that. People that were confused, had different language, are now united because of the Spirit and because of what the gospel says is true. And then they're called to go back out and make a difference. They have a universal message to change the world. And author Sky Jatani writes about this where he's paralleling these two passages, Acts chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 11. He talks about and Tower of Babel, and the unity of God's people, of how important, if we were really unified, how unbelievable, beautiful that would be. And he says this about this. He talks about um, God's unity with his people. It's, it's not about a commitment to the same mission. Right? Like at Babel, they had a commitment to the same mission, but it's about communion with the same Savior. Right? That changes things. And so if we look at this text and we see how the Spirit encounters the early church and encounters us from an outside power that now gives us inner illumination to change the way we think about the gospel and then sends us back out to have a universal message, how do we 
tap into the Spirit? How do we tap into that power? How do we become filled with the Holy Spirit? What does God require of us in this process? He requires of us the same thing he required of the apostles. Emptiness. Because the only way to be filled is to first be emptied. Now think about the scene. Jesus raises from the dead. He appears to his disciples. He's hanging out with them. He's eating with them. He's teaching them for 40 days. 40 days he's hanging out with them. And he says, listen, I'm deuces. I'm out. I'm going up on this cloud. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you a new mission, but you just got to wait. So he leaves, goes up in the clouds, and we see it in the beginning of Acts. We see it in other parts of the gospel. The disciples are just like, all right. He said, wait. They're taking this real literal. They're just sitting there waiting. So much so that God has to send an angel to come and say, listen, like he's going to come back. How we can. You need to go and do work. So I can just imagine the conversations that were happening. Okay, he told us to wait. Dude, I bet this is another one of those three-day three day tricks, like the grave thing, you know? Like, he's going to come back in three days. We can wait three days. That's fine. So they gather, they pray, they meditate. It's day three, and they're looking around going, okay, he's got to come back. Day four, day five, day six, day seven. That must be going like, how long do we have to wait? Like, is it, and so again, he teaches with them for 40 days when he shows up, Jesus, and then he ascends, and then Pentecost, when this chapter happens in, in two, is 50 days. So there's a 10-day stretch between 40 and 50, 10 days. So imagine how they were feeling at day 10. Listen to what Kent Hughes, who has a commentary on Acts, says about this. He says, during these 10 days, the disciples undoubtedly felt empty. They were more aware than ever the importance of their Savior's presence, and now he was gone. The Master's words recorded in John fifteen five, apart from me you can do nothing, were forever embedded in their consciousness. But their profound emptiness, as trying as it was, made them ready for Pentecost. If we want to be filled with the Spirit, we have to be emptied first. And not just circumstantially. Maybe you feel like you're empty because you're in a rope. But even if you're doing really well, it's this process of emptying yourself, of not relying on yourself, of saying, God, empty me so you can fill me. Change me. And ask Him to examine your heart to see if there's any wicked way within you to say, God, I want to confess that and I want to repent and I want you to change me. I need you to fill me with your Spirit. And really, the only reason we can be filled is because of what Jesus has done. The only way we can become empty is because he became empty for us. I love Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Listen to what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus is the perfect model. He's the perfect mediator. Jesus is the only reason we have access to God's Spirit. May we realize that our power 
has to come from outside of us. It has to come from God. And may we embrace the inner illumination that the Spirit does, that we're really sons and daughters of Christ if you're following him. And may we be used to spread his universal message to all people. And may we be empty so we can be full. Let's pray.